pray. Father, as we come before your word, give us ears to hear what you have to say to us. Calm our minds and soften our hearts. Let your spirit work as we hear from you today. Amen. And I want to ask you this very important question. And and this question is of great importance because the answer is of great significance. The question is this, do you have true faith in Jesus? Do you have true faith in Jesus? And I ask this because there are many who believe they have faith in Jesus, but their faith actually lies elsewhere. Or they claim to have faith in Jesus, but their faith is no more than a profession. A a profession of their faith. And I know this because I was once that person. Um, So I went to to church with my parents. It was was a Catholic church, but, but I went to please them. And as long as as long as I, I, I didn't do anything too bad, I didn't murder or, or commit armed robbery, I thought that I, I could make it into heaven. My faith was faith. And similarly, when I went to university, I did meet a lot of friends who claimed to have faith in Jesus, but, but later find out that they did not. They actually showed no interest in him through that period of their life. Very often, many claim to believe in Jesus, to have faith in him. But when that faith is put to test, it's proven to be dead. Well, in Luke 18, just before the passage that we're in today, we read of Jesus' encounter of this rich ruler. And this rich ruler made an outrageous claim that he kept every single commandment since he was a child. But when pressed, we find out that his true God was money. He had no faith in God, but rather faith in money. And we learn from Jesus' words the, the grave difficulties of a rich person entering the kingdom of God. Just remember that familiar Um, that familiar comparison that Jesus made, that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Well, as we come to today's passage, I want you to keep that interaction in the back of your mind because in today's passage, we see another encounter between Jesus and a man consumed with greed, but the outcome is actually very different. In the first couple of chapters, in chapter 19, we can see that Jesus is, uh, he's currently passing through Jericho, and, and if you didn't know, Jericho is known for its vast and prosperous trading center. And because of this, Jericho was home to the wealthiest businessman and in turn, the wealthiest of tax collectors. And in the first couple of verses, we see that the man Jesus is about to encounter is called Zacchaeus, the chief 
tax collector described to be a wealthy man. And as he was a chief tax collector, we know that he likely oversaw the tax collectors in the region of Jericho. So, so he wasn't simply rich, he was filthy rich. But at this point in Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, it's very unlikely that anyone in Jericho had met Jesus. Uh, they would have almost certainly heard of him because just 15 miles away was Bethany, the place where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And, and there's no doubt that this, that this event spreads about the man who, who was healing the blind and, and raising the dead. So, so Jesus was essentially a celebrity. He was the latest talk of the town. And in verses 3 and 4, we're, we're greeted with a very familiar picture. And, and I'm sure if many of you grew up in church, you'll probably remember the illustrations of a crowd gathering around Jesus and uh, as, a, as a short, rich man climbs a large sycamore tree so, so he can see over them. Well, in the midst of this, this large crowd that's growing as as Jesus and the disciples approached Jer- Jericho, well, Jesus spots Zacchaeus at the top of the sycamore tree. And with the same voice and authority that told the lame to get up and walk, and the same voice and authority that called Lazarus by his name and raised him from the dead, that same voice and authority called Zacchaeus by name and said, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Friends, this isn't like a, a, a polite invitation. Jesus didn't say it would, be nice, it would be nice if we met up for dinner sometime so I can discuss the gospel with you. This was a command from the creator of the universe. Leon Morris puts it, he says, Jesus saw his visit to Zacchaeus as part of his divine mission. From the authority in Jesus' words, we can, we can see that, the, that visiting the house of Zacchaeus was something that had to happen immediately. However, we don't, we, we don't actually know what occurred, what occurred during Jesus' stay. Um, we know that Zacchaeus welcomed Jesus into his home with gladness, and, and those, who wit- those who witnessed this muttered their disapproval. But what could be of such importance that the Messiah himself decides to dine with a man of greed, a man despised by his community and and possibly rightly so? Although we may never know the words that Jesus uttered to Zacchaeus in his home, we know this, that the encounter that Zacchaeus had with Jesus caused him to turn away from his sin and turn to God. A man that was once a slave to money, consumed by greed, has now found his riches in Christ. He displayed true repentance. He displayed true faith. 
He back, back in chapter 18, the rich ruler claimed that, claimed that he had um, kept every commandment of God. And, and Jesus, knowing the man's heart, told the rich ruler to sell everything he had and to give it to the poor. But the rich ruler walked away in sadness because he was wealthy. But don't be mistaken, Jesus isn't simply in the habit of condemning people for having money. However, it's clear that the rich ruler in chapter 18 did not want to repent of his greed and follow Jesus. He did not want to recognize his sinfulness and his need for grace. He loved money too much. And in stark contrast, Zacchaeus was determined to show that he had truly repented of his greed. Let's look at verse 8. Zacchaeus says, look, Lord, here and now I give half of what I own to those who are poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay it back. I will pay back four times the amount I took. Now, I just I hope you're not missing what's going on here because this is where every world religion gets it wrong. You mustn't think that Zacchaeus is buying his way into the kingdom of God. Zacchaeus' response to his dinner with Jesus, it, show, it shows us the very simplicity of the Christian faith. Because in verse 9, Jesus declared Zacchaeus a son of Abraham, but this is not because he decided to give up loads of his money, and nor was it because he, he was able to follow every one of God's commands. As we see in his confession, he was, a, he was a cheat and a thief. It's not because he managed to make it to church on a Sunday. He managed not to lie or steal or disobey his parents. See, the simplicity of the Christian faith is this that he was declared a son of Abraham because of his faith. There's a certain Bible commentator that puts it like this. He said that Zacchaeus was not saved because he promised to do good works. He was saved because he responded by faith to Christ's gracious word to him. And having trusted in the Savior, he then gave evidence of his faith by promising to make restitution to those he had wronged. See, Jesus called the rich ruler to have faith in him and not money. And Jesus called Zacchaeus to have faith in, faith in him and not his stolen earthly riches. And Jesus calls you and I to have faith in him, not your money, not our jobs or our family or our friends or our social status, not our political parties, not in any of these things, but solely in him. Jesus' call to faith is simultaneously a call to repentance. See, as we're, as we're turning towards Jesus in faith, we're also turning away from our sin. Because it's, it's impossible to claim that we have faith in Jesus whilst our hearts and our minds are still transfixed on the things of this world. And the reason we know Zacchaeus was converted is 
because of his reaction to his encounter with Jesus. Of course, like, like I said, the rich young ruler was walked away saddened, whereas Zacchaeus gave up half of all he owned and, and gave back four times the amount of what he stole. By, um, by Jewish law, when an animal is stolen, the thief is required to give back four times the amount. And that's if the animal is found killed. But double the amount if it's found alive. Because Zacchaeus viewed his sin severely, he gave himself the maximum penalty of four times the amount. And in Leviticus and Numbers, we see that the punishment for fraud is to give back all of you stole, or all, all that you, you have stole, with one fifth added on top. So Zacchaeus decided to give back all he owned, or half, sorry, half of all he owned to the poor. See, I think this was a man that knew the seriousness of his sin and went through great lengths to make restitution with those that he had wronged. And I pray that every one of us will continually recognize the seriousness of our sin, repent and turn to Christ in faith. And not, not the faith that is simply professed with words, but as, as James puts it, the faith that works. A faith that is proven by our actions. A faith that is revealed by our eagerness to put to sin to put the sin in our life to death as we live as children of Abraham, as children of God. I like the way a, a commentator puts it. He said, saving faith is more than pious words and devout feelings. It creates a living union with Christ that results in a changed life. And Charles Spurgeon, when he's preaching on the relationship between faith and works, he used this great analogy of a tree. And he says this, he says, a, a tree has been planted out into the ground, and, and the source of that life, the, the source of life to that tree is at the root. And whether it, it has apples on it or not, the apples would not give it life, but the whole life of the tree comes from the root. But if that tree stands in the garden, and when springtime comes, there is no buds, and when summer comes, there are no leaves, and no fruit in the next year and the next, if, if it stands there without bud or blossom or leaf or fruit, you would say it's dead. And you are correct. But it's not that the leaves could have made it live, but the absence of the leaves is proof that it is dead. So too is it with the, with the professor of the faith. If he has life, that life must give fruit. It must give work if his faith has a root. But if there are no works, then it would be correct to say that he is spiritually dead. And we know Zacchaeus' faith was true because of the fruit that he bore in his act of his repentance. Just as every Christian in this room 
the faith that we have is a gift from God and any fruit we bear does not contribute to our salvation but comes as a result of it. As Jonathan Edward puts it, the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. From a human standpoint, we might even say that Zacchaeus was doing some good as he showed an eagerness to see Jesus when he was climbing up the tree. But if we look at it through our spiritual lenses, we must see that way before Zacchaeus was seeking Jesus, Jesus was seeking him. As Jesus says in verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And Zacchaeus was lost, and so were we. Before Christ found us and gave us the gift of faith and cleansed us with his blood so that we might spend the rest of our days living in faith and bringing glory to his name. Now, up to, up to this point in Jesus' ministry, uh, Jesus' followers have, have witnessed some amazing life-changing events. Like, so, uh, what I mentioned earlier, the, the healing of the sick and the raising of Lazarus and the healing of the, va- the, the blind, and, and then in Zacchaeus' case, a camel fitting through the eye of a needle. A rich, greedy man redeemed. And because of all that was happening during this time, many of Jesus' followers were convinced that the kingdom of God was about to appear or appear at once, as it says in verse 11. And those who were Jewish thought that Jesus was ready to establish God's kingdom here on earth, to bring judgment to those who have oppressed the people of God for hundreds and thousands of years to bring an end to the pain and the injustices of this world. And yes, ultimately, God has a plan to renew this world and to destroy all those that oppose him and to bring to pass a new heaven and a new earth for all his people to enjoy. In many ways, it may not feel like it now, but God will reign victorious over all evil. But that time has not yet come. In the parable, verses 12 to 27, I think we can see that the faith God has gifted us with has a part to play in the growth and the establishment of God's kingdom. The parable tells us of a man of noble birth who has to go to a faraway country to be appointed king and then return back to his land. And we see that this man of noble birth calls his servants uh, um, before his goal and uh, provides them with a mean reach. It's about three months' wages, and, and he, tells them, he tells them this. He says, put this money to work until I come back. We see, and, and we see that even though many of his subjects hated him, this man of noble birth was eventually made king and eventually returned home. And, and of course, we, we know from hindsight 
that Jesus is referring to himself when he refers to the man of noble birth. And, and because we know that Jesus is about to, to leave earth, we know he'll die and be resurrected from the dead and ascend into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. So it's clear that the king in this parable is Jesus. But apart from the king, there are three other types of, char uh, of, of characters in this parable. And I think they can be summarized in the following categories. The faithful, the fake, and the enemy. See, two of the, the king's servants in this parable made a profit on the minas that was given to them. One had made an additional ten, and the other made an additional five. But if you notice the language that was used in their words in 16 and 18, he says, well, they say, your, your mina, your mina has earned. See, each faithful servant gave credit to their master for the profit made. And as it is with those who walk in the gift of faith that they have been given. See, the faithful servant of Jesus is called to live out the faith that they proclaim. The faithful servant of Jesus is called to serve God wholeheartedly and in doing so will produce fruit and multiply that which he has been given. I think everything that a believer has should be stewarded in such a way that it brings glory to God and multiplies his kingdom. And those who are faithful towards Jesus will be rewarded. <clears throat> we see that in, in the parable that the, the fruitfulness of the servants is rewarded with cities. They will each give them minas and in return their reward is cities. I hope you can see that the generosity of the king that we serve, the, the, generous, the generosity of our God. See, our king will bless us with more than we can imagine. If, if you... Uh, in, 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 verse, in chapter 18, verse 29 to 30, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Zacchaeus gave up so much of what he had as a result of his faith, and his faithfulness will, go, will, will not go without reward. And if we have faith in Jesus and, and walk in life of his truth, our faithfulness will not go without reward. And that, that reward will be immensely bigger than what we deserve. The second category that we see is the fake. If you read verse 20 to 21, it says, Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in, and you reap what you did not sow. See, evidently, the servant knows he's done something wrong because he knew that you don't just take something because 
value and, and simply cover it in a cloth. In some cases, you might want to bury it, but, but you can hear the guilt in his words as he utters, uh, as, uh, like, uh, as he makes up excuses for his lack of work. You're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. See, not, not only is his servant lazy, but he accuses the king of being a thief. See, I think there's nothing that indicates this man's faith is real. And I think he is the type of person that Jesus mentioned in, in Matthew 7, 21, 23. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. See, this is not an example of a true believer, but a counterfeit. I don't think no believer would, would dare call God a thief, and, and God never called any believer a wicked servant as the king does in verse 22. See, it's likely the servant might work when the king is present, but lays down in slothfulness the second the king goes away. Or maybe like the rich young ruler, he, he claims to us have kept all the commandments, but in his heart there's a, there's a false idol that he worships. Well, nevertheless, this type of man will receive nothing in the kingdom of heaven. And, and I have no doubt that he will receive what those in the third category will receive. Lastly, the, the enemy. Verse 27, but those of mine who did not want me to be king over them. Those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them. Bring them here and kill them in front of me. See, both the fake servant and the enemy will receive judgment according to their sins. They have rejected God in one way or another. The rich ruler in chapter 18 rejected Jesus by holding fast to his money as his God. And many Jews listening to Jesus rejected him more directly by sending him to the cross to die. Bring them here and kill them in front of me. See, this is no easy pill to swallow. And the odds are that there are people in this room who are rejecting Jesus' very words today in one way or another. And, and, regardless of what, and regardless of what way, I think you have a decision to make. I like T.W. Manson's words on this. He said, we may be horrified by the fierceness of the conclusion, but beneath the grim imagery is an equally grim fact that the coming of Jesus to the world put every man to the test, compelled every man to make a decision 
And that decision is no light matter. It is a matter of life and death. See, every human being in this room will either reign with Jesus in glory or spend an eternity in hell paying for their transgressions. And Jesus wants you to remain, to reign with him in glory. Will you have faith in him? And not a mere profession, but true faith. Faith that shows itself by walking according to the will of the Father. Faith that trusts not in works, but in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. For the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you came to seek us, the lost. I thank you for your gift of faith. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, please help us to exercise your gift of faith and walk according to your will. We thank you that we can trust that the work you began in us will continue through to completion. And Father, we also pray for anyone here who might be doubting their faith. We pray that they can have confidence, not in themselves, but in Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. We pray this in his glorious name. Amen.